Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. So we're going to look at uh, Revelation 14 tonight. We're going to look at about half of it. We'll finish the rest of the chapter next week. I've entitled tonight's uh, lesson, The Song of the Redeemed. Um, You heard me, if you were here Sunday, you heard me mention about a a favorite song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. um, And um, it's called Favorite Song of All. Excuse me. To... um, kind of touch on it briefly it tells a story of God there in heaven what could be his favorite song uh, one song he hears is the song of creation you know uh, all the birds chirp and the wind blows and the tree sways and the rain drops splash and he smiles he likes that because he made it all and it was good and then of course there in heaven he has the uh, angels around the throne holy 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 is the lamb holy holy uh, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And, of course, they're giving him praise. And so, you know, uh, he, likes the, he, he likes that song, obviously, because he's worthy of all praise. But then it says his favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. Those that have been uh, lost sinners that are now made clean, they lift up their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood... Lift to him a song of love, nothing more he'd rather hear, so pleasing to his ear, his favorite song of all. And I'm like, amen. Well, tonight in Revelation 14, you're going to see the song of the redeemed. And uh, I want you to look, if you will, there in Revelation 14. And just to kind of give you some context, um, in the last chapter, Revelation 13, We were introduced to two beasts, one from the sea, one from the land. Uh, One is the Antichrist, one is the false prophet, and the false prophet points everybody to the Antichrist, uh, everybody in the world that worships that beast. The Antichrist takes uh, his mark upon their hand or their forehead, and um, we've already seen earlier in Revelation that those that know Christ are sealed with the seal of God on their forehead. And now we read in Revelation 14, uh, the scene shifts. And there in verse 1, John says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay? So at this point, just to kind of frame the... uh, the place where we are in Revelation right now, you've got two kinds of people. And uh, there are those that follow the beast and they have the mark of the beast. And then there are those that follow Christ, the Lamb of God, that have His name, His seal on their forehead. Either way, you've got some kind of mark or seal that distinguishes who is who. Okay, just, just want you to understand that's the context of where we're at in the book and what we're looking at, what we're reading. So I'll continue. So there in verse 2, he says, first of all, notice he said, I looked. So he looked and he saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 
uh, people with his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Then he hears, okay, he hears a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, I pointed this out earlier in Revelation, and I want to point it out again here as way of a reminder. Uh, we'll, we'll eventually get to who are these 144,000 people, and I will say that this is not the first time they've been mentioned. Uh, it will be the last time, I think, that they're mentioned, if my memory serves me right. But the first time the 144,000 were mentioned was in Revelation 7. And in Revelation 7, if you want to turn back there for a minute, I want to point out a pattern for you to observe so that we can look at it again where we are. But in Revelation 7, it says, After this I saw okay, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds. And uh, then, verse 2, I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. And he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels that are holding back the, the winds. Okay, He says, don't harm the earth or sea or trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, and it's 144,000. Okay, uh, 12,000 from the 12 different tribes of Israel. And then in verse 9, after this I looked... And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, uh, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So again, notice the pattern here. He sees these angels holding back the wind from the four corners of the earth, and they're told, don't do anything until the servants of God are sealed uh, with God's seal on their foreheads. And that's what he sees then he hears the number, 144,000, and then he looks, and it's a huge multitude that you can't even count, okay, from people everywhere, every tribe, nation, ethnicity, so on and so forth. Uh, so you, get, you go back to where we are now, and you see the, the script has flipped the other way. Now he looks and sees the number, 144,000, okay, in Revelation 14, and he hears a sound, and he's describing the sound, and he hears a new song, and he says nobody could sing the song except for these 144,000. And so you see that pattern in Revelation. It's a, it's a book full of visions that God gave John, okay? And so he will see things, and then he will hear things, and it's interesting to observe that juxtaposition of that pattern because if you remember all the way back in the beginning of Revelation, he hears a voice like a trumpet and he looks and there is the glorified Christ, right? 
uh, then they're worshiping at the throne. I believe this is chapter 4 or 5 of Revelation. And uh, he is told that, uh, you know, who is worthy to open the scroll? And he's looking around and nobody's worthy and he's getting concerned. He's getting worried and someone says, oh, no, no, no. There is someone who is worthy to open the scroll and it's, uh, he's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Well, all right. And then he looks and instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. Okay, so you have this hear-see pattern where you hear something and you see, or see something else and vice versa. And uh, you see that pattern over and over again in Revelation. Just wanted to point it out to you. Here it is again. So let's observe what's going on in this passage. First of all, he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Um, I, uh, I love that because um, here is uh, Jesus standing on Mount Zion. And basically, it's, it's heaven. Uh, some, some people debate this. Some say, well, he's on earth. Some say he's in heaven. Well, if you look at the context, verse 2, I heard a sound from heaven. Okay? And they are um, singing a new song in verse 3, before the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. And these people have been redeemed from the earth. So where is this, where is this vision taking place? It's taking place in heaven, okay? And so uh, Jesus, Lamb of God, is standing on Mount Zion in heaven. And it reminds me of Psalm 2, which is a, a messianic song, uh, a psalm, excuse me, and Psalm 2, verse 6 says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And I, I, I love this shift because if you go back one chapter to Revelation 13, as this beast of Antichrist is introduced, he comes up out of the sea. Okay, So Antichrist, the beast of the Antichrist in Revelation 13, he's the sea monster. He comes up out of the sea. And if you're coming up out of the sea, then that means you're going to come up on the shore. What's usually on a shore? Sand, okay? Contrast that with Christ, the Lamb of God, standing on a mountain, okay? Just kind of cluing you into the, uh, the scenery here. You can see which leader is stronger, of course. Um, one commentator said John referred to the Lamb on the immovable mountain in a deliberate contrast to the dragon that was last seen standing on shifting sand. And so that's the scene. And then we're told, with Christ standing on Mount Zion, we're told that with him were 144,000 people who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Uh, that's code for also saying that they've got the seal of God on their foreheads. We just looked at that in Revelation 7. Okay, So clearly they're, they're believers. It says they are, are redeemed. They've been redeemed from the earth there in verse 3. Uh, I like what uh, Bill, G.K. Bill said. He said the 144,000 pictured with Christ here on Mount Zion are the same group of people that were sealed in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. Okay? And they are the saints of all ages. The uh, name of Christ and of the Father are placed in opposition to the name of the beast, which is written on the foreheads of unbelievers, if, if they took the mark of the beast. Uh, Michael Kukendall says, Many scholars affirm that John is picturing the whole church uh, here in this situation. 
They carry the banner of the gospel of Christ to the nations. Therefore, the first mention uh, in chapter 7 reflects their witness on earth. And this second mention in Revelation 14 reflects their reward that they will receive when Christ comes back. And so I love that. Uh, If you want to check out more on that, I know we're recording these uh, online and so on. You can go back and watch my lesson on Revelation 7 where I lay out a very compelling argument on how the 144,000 refer to uh, believers. I don't have time to get into that, but I can point you back to that. Um, With that said, uh, notice that they sing a new song. Okay, I want to let's look at all these threads and tie them together here. So he hears a sound from heaven, and he hears a new song there in verse three, uh, that only the hundred forty-four thousand who have been redeemed from the earth could learn to sing. They're the only ones that can sing it. That's a big clue. It's the song of the redeemed. Okay. Uh, Again, one guy said the only, now I love this, the only other new song. Now, if you were to do a study on new song, it comes up in Psalms where it says, sing to the Lord a new song. Um, But uh, the only other time that the term new song is mentioned in the book of Revelation, we have to go back to this one, is in Revelation 5. And so I want you to turn there for a minute. Revelation 5 and see this. This is the only other time in the Revelation where you see the terminology new song and the context of it is the elders that are singing it in honor of the Lamb. It's in Revelation 5 verse 9 referring to the the 24 elders. It says they sang a new song, Revelation 5 9 and here's what the, the words to the song were. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And so that was a new song and the song focuses on how the, the, the Lamb of God was slain so that He could purchase our salvation from every tribe, tongue, and language of people groups throughout the world. Amen. And so uh, they had sung about how his death purchased people for God. Well, guess what? Here they are. Here they are in Revelation 14. People that have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, 144,000 of them redeemed from the earth. And um, here they are. So, And by the way, the same... Uh, word in the original language appears here in verse 3 and there in chapter 5 verse 9. So we're, we're talking about the same thing, purchased or redeemed by God. Um, now, it's always interesting, I mean, different, uh, different uh, faith groups, uh, when they come to the Bible, they look at things differently. Uh, the big fork in the road when you start reading Revelation is, is it literal or is it symbolic? Well, I'll give you a clue. This is the most symbolic book in the Bible, okay? But when I say it's symbolic, that doesn't mean we have to spiritualize everything. 
Uh, that doesn't mean we have to sensationalize everything. It doesn't mean that uh, I look and, and say, hmm, those locusts, uh, I wonder if that could be helicopters. Have you seen the latest thing that the military does? No, no, no. See, that's sensationalism, okay? So what we have to do is we look for the symbols, and then we ask ourselves, is it giving us the interpretation in the text? Sometimes it does, okay? Like when Christ in chapter 1 is walking among the seven candlesticks, he tells us that the seven candlesticks are seven churches. And so we don't have to guess what is that, what does that mean. Uh, sometimes we don't have the clue that tells us what it means. So we have to go back and look at the rest of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, and say, where has this been mentioned before, and what is this trying to tell us? <clears throat> well, I don't believe that we're literally only going to have 144,000 people in heaven, okay? There used to be a particular denomination that taught that, and the number of people in their denomination was way higher than that. How do you know who makes the cut? Okay, just saying. And so I believe this number is symbolic, okay? I believe it represents all of God's people because they have been redeemed, okay? And they have the seal of God or His name on their foreheads, and so they clearly belong to God. Now, here's something interesting. Go back to verse 2. Uh, I, I skipped that, but I, I don't want to leave it out. In verse 2, he says, I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. Now, again, he's trying to describe to us, he's trying to verbalize and describe what he's seeing and what he's hearing. And in verse 2, he uses the word like three times, like the sound of cascading waters, like rumbling of loud thunder, and like harpists playing on their harps. And so, again, he's being very descriptive. Now, the like the sound of cascading waters is interesting because we've heard that before. If you go back to Revelation 1, verse 15, when John initially described the voice of the risen Christ, he said it was like cascading waters. And... Uh, since John was on an island, the island of Patmos, he was familiar with, you know, the sound of water, uh, maybe pounding the shore. And then the second description there is he heard a sound like the rumbling of loud thunder. And what's interesting is in Revelation 6, verse 1, uh, where you have, I think, the, uh, the seven seals begin to be un unlocked or opened, um, the sound of thunder uh, is depicted of the voice of one of the four living creatures. And so you've, you've heard loud thunder before. And then you've got harpists playing on their harps. That's the third description. And it's interesting that the 24 elders gathered around the throne of God in Revelation 5, they have harps. And uh, in a couple weeks when we get to Revelation chapter 15, uh, you will find there in Revelation 15, Verse 2, he, he looks and he sees uh, these people there on a sea of glass with harps from God. And they begin to sing a song. And so I thought all of that was interesting. But what was really interesting is if you jump toward the end of the book, in uh, Revelation 19, verse 6 and 7, toward the end of the book, uh, John says, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, 
like the sound of cascading waters. There it is. Like the rumbling of loud thunder. That's, that's two out of three. Saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has prepared herself. So later in the book, you're going to have two out of the three of those sounds. You're going to have the cascading waters and the loud thunder. And so I just thought that was an interesting connection there. Um, but at any rate, let's go a little bit deeper there in verse 4. This is what is usually confusing to folks. Uh, I can remember being a new Christian, and uh, I was reading through a Bible because I didn't understand a lot. And boy, when I got to Revelation, I really got confused. And I can remember the first time I actually read through Revelation. I was still a youth. I was at home. I had a, um, I had a very um, uh, easy-to-understand translation of the Bible. And I was just taking it in as a story, you know, because I had not read Revelation. I, I wasn't sure what was in there. So I'm reading it, and I'm praying, and I'm reading, and I'm feeling it. Lord, come back quickly, you know. But I didn't understand the spin cycle that we got to go through to get there. And uh, I remember reading this part in chapter 14 and just not understanding it. And I thank God that he gives us understanding when we ask him. But there in verse 4, in reference to these 144,000 people, he says, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. Now, again, forgive me for a moment, but I want to illustrate where things break down when you take the most symbolic book of the Bible and you make it literal. If we take everything in this short passage and make it literal, if, if you really make it literal, then you're going to say, well, there's only going to be 144,000 people in heaven. Now, we're talking from beginning of time to end of time. Think how many billion of people there are on the planet right now. Okay, but we're talking about generation after generation after generation from beginning of history to end of history. It's only going to be 144,000 people in heaven. It's going to be no women in heaven, only virgins in heaven. You see where all this breaks down? I mean, God instituted marriage, right? We teach people that sex is good within the context and boundaries of marriage, not outside of marriage. And so... If you take every, everything in here literal, then you're holding the line when it comes to that number, 144,000. You have to look at the description here and say, well, in verse 4, I don't know about women. I'm not sure if they're not a virgin. I mean, it just, it just breaks down. Now, again, what is he trying to say here? Okay, If I didn't have your attention, I guess I do now, but, but stick with me. So he describes these 144,000. They've not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And if you're like me, the first time I ever read it, you're going to say, what in the world is He talking about? I, I, you know, I, I don't know anybody like that, I don't think. I mean, what is that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, when you followed other gods, it was called two things, idolatry and adultery, okay? And Paul adopted that language even in the New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, when Paul was talking to the church in Corinth, 
in the context of idolatry and immorality, he said this in 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Okay? Now here's something you should know. Let's get back. Let's don't get lost in the trees. Let's look at the forest. If you were to do a fast speed read from Revelation 14 to the end of the book, about eight chapters, what you're going to find is Babylon comes along in chapter, I think it's 16, 17. Well, chapter 17, a woman on a scarlet beast, and she's a great prostitute. And Babylon the Great, the worldly system, is, uh, falls and is judged by God, and she's described as a prostitute. And by the time you get to the end of the book, God's people come together and you have the wedding supper of the Lamb. So the backdrop is marriage, uh, being uh, a pure adorned bride prepared for her husband and the marriage ceremony versus a prostitute. If you understand that is the backdrop of this point forward in the book, then you catch all of these details and descriptions and symbolism, and at that point it doesn't confuse you. It clarifies the difference between God's people and those that follow the beast and take his mark. He's really, he's got a picture book, and he's painting pictures, and he's making a clear contrast between two kinds of people, those that follow God and those that don't. Uh, so if we focus on the literal, it gets real confusing real quick. Um, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes and they've been redeemed from humanity. Well, it also says that they have been redeemed from humanity as first fruits for God. Now, I love this. William Hendrickson makes this point. He says, Observe especially that these 144,000 are first fruits for God and for the Lamb in the sense that they were purchased away from men. In other words, there was a separation. They are the first fruits for the Lord. And as such, they're set apart from men in general. The world of humanity, which is ripe for the final judgment, is often likened to a harvest. And what's ironic is, we don't have time tonight, but if you read the last half of Revelation chapter 14, the chapter we're in, he talks about the earth is going to have a final harvest. Okay? And uh, so this all fits the context of what we're looking at. The symbolism connects to the chapter. And so here we have the first fruits of the Lord, and then the rest is for... Satan. We'll get into that next week when we see that there's a harvest uh, of grain and grapes. And it's basically, it's, it's the final harvest when Christ comes where the, the wheat and the chaff are separated and you have a separation of the righteous and the wicked. That's next week, but just throwing it out there. So the symbolism rests upon the Old Testament law in respect to first fruits. All the first fruits were offered to the Lord. If you read the Old Testament, when they brought the first fruits, it was the, the best, uh, the cream of the crop. And all of the first fruits were offered to the Lord. And then 
when someone brought the first fruits to, to God, the rest they could use however they wanted. But the first fruits belonged to Him. In the same way, have a contrast between the first fruits and everyone else. And I like this. One more thing before I move on. Hendrickson says these 144,000 are not first fruits versus other believers. In other words, this 144,000 group of people are not a select group of super saints, okay? Uh, they are the first fruits purchased away from men. That, that's evident from the fact that they have his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. They've been redeemed from the earth, okay? And they contrast with chapter 13, those that follow the beast, and uh, all believers are sealed by God. So, and then it says in verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, Christians aren't like unbelievers who exchange the truth of God for a lie, as Romans 1 says. In the end times, these 144,000 sharply contrast with the Antichrist and the false prophet and all who follow him because they deceive the entire world and they're deceived. Uh, these are not. They walk in truth and there's no lie in their mouths. Uh, Herschel Hobbes said it best. He says these 144,000 did not deny Christ through emperor worship. Uh, as Christ is without blemish, so they had been made through his blood and uh, they were called to be courageous and patient. So there you go. The 144,000 gathered around the Lamb it's all the redeemed people of God that have been redeemed from the earth by the blood of the Lamb, and they now have a song of the redeemed that only they can sing because they're the only ones that know what it's like to turn from darkness to light, to be pointed toward death and to be given new life in Christ. No wonder the Bible says that you know, we have such a great salvation that even angels long to look into these things. Well, we'll move on, and now we'll look at this next passage, uh, Revelation 14, verse 6. We now have a warning to the wicked. In verse 6, his vision continues, Then I saw another angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And so this is for everybody. He spoke with a loud voice. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the One who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now that is the first angel. Uh, if I keep reading, you'll find out that there are three angels and each one has a specific message. We're going to look at this quickly. The first angel, he's flying overhead with the eternal gospel. He announced to everyone on earth, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of judgment has come. It's here. The time is now. So worship the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. As Herschel Hobbes says, this gospel is a pronouncement that the hour of God's judgment has come so all should revere God and give Him glory. Now, I'm reminded of Revelation 11, 18, where the 24 elders said, The time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants. And at the time of the final judgment, everyone will acknowledge God 
and it's expressed in these three commands. Fear God, give Him glory, worship Him. Now, I think that's significant because there's two kinds of people on the earth at this time. There are those that are sealed with the seal of God on their forehead, and they are believers. And then there is the rest of the world that follows the beast, that worships the beast and his image, and takes upon their uh, hand or their forehead the mark of the beast. And yet here is an angel saying to everybody, regardless of which side of the fence you're on, fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. These commands are basically acknowledging God as the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And that's very interesting too, because when you read the first four seals, when you read the first four trumpets, it affects the uh, earth, the sky, the salt water, the fresh water. So there's a reason why he, he coins that, that terminology in that kind of way. But uh, people may refuse to worship Christ as Savior because they've taken the mark of the beast. But they will certainly worship God as Creator. And that's what this is saying. Then you go on to the next verse. And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Um, that certainly contrasts with the 144,000 that were not defiled and remained virgins. And so... Uh, again, remember the backdrop I mentioned. So here, the second angel announces that Babylon the Great has fallen. It's mentioned twice. Fallen, fallen. It's in the perfect tense. It's as if it's already happened. Okay, uh, the, the angel is proclaiming it as if it's already happened. Uh, we haven't read it yet. We'll read it in two or three chapters uh, in Revelation later in the book. But as far as... God's concern, it's, it's already happened. And so it anticipates what's going to happen in Revelation 16 and 18. The reason for Babylon's fall is her seduction of the nations, intoxicating them with a mixed brew of rage and license, and God will reciprocate His wrath against them. So uh, Kendall easily says, just as the 144,000 were symbolized as sexual virgins, so the opposite group here is symbolized by prostitution. Again, note the symbols. They mean something. They send a message because they paint a picture. And then we read in verse 9, the third angel followed them, the previous two, and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. This third angel says those that worship the beast and receive its mark or worship its image will drink the wine of God's wrath. And this wine is not diluted. Back in those days, they would dilute wine with water. 
but in this graphic description, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength, no dilution. Okay? And uh, they are tormented with fire and sulfur forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Babylon's wine that was mentioned there in verse 8 was temporary, but the effects of God's wine are forever. The uh, first angel, or the first description from this angel is drinking unmixed wine. The second is being tormented with burning sulfur. The third is no rest day or night. And uh, that contrasts with verse 13, where he says, he heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labor since their works follow them. And so you see the ultimate end of all mankind. Those that know Christ are blessed when they die in the Lord and they will rest and their works will follow them. But those that follow the beast, those that do not know Christ, they follow the beast, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, they'll be uh, in conscious eternal torment forever and ever. Now that raises an issue that we have to address. What about hell? You know, if you did a poll today, it'd be interesting. Everybody wants to believe in heaven. Nobody wants to believe in hell. Everybody wants to believe in God. Nobody really wants to act like there's a devil. And can I tell you that Jesus talked a lot about hell. If you read what's in the Bible on the topic of hell, Jesus talked more about it than anybody else. I guess you could say he was qualified on the subject, was he not? And he was most concerned because he didn't want anybody to go there. Now, a popular theory for some is to say, well, when I die, I don't care because I'm going to be gone and that's it. End of game, screen goes black, game over. The annihilation theory. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where the uh, worm never dies. Here it's talking about it will be forever and ever and there, there will be no rest day or night. night. So uh, conscious et eternal torment. And uh, that's what the Bible teaches. What, what's even worse is if you look again uh, in um, verse, um, verse 10, they drink the wine of God's wrath and they'll be tormented, halfway through verse 10, they'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And someone said what will be even worse is that they must endure uh, this torture, this torment, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Who can imagine how terrible it would be to suffer knowing that God is watching throughout all eternity? Never thought of it that way, but you can certainly draw that conclusion. Now, let's bring this home for a minute. Again, we're reminded after being introduced to Antichrist and the false prophet, after realizing that there's going to be two kinds of people in the world, those that, that know the Lamb and follow Him wherever He goes, and they have the seal of God on their forehead, they have the name of the Lamb and His Father on their forehead, versus everyone else, they, they worship the beast, they worship the image of the beast, and they take upon themselves the mark of the beast. There will only be two kinds of people in the world 
and they have two different destinations because they're going in two different directions. One leads to heaven, and the other leads to hell. And you can't get more serious, I suppose, than that. As Christians, we have a message, and he gives it to us there in verse 12. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. And then he heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. So they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. This is a little long, but it's worth hearing. Dennis Johnson has a great quote. He says, In response to these three announcements, that the hour of judgment has come, the first angel, Babylon has fallen, the second angel, and the beast followers will be tormented, the third angel, John, in the Spirit, interjects a word to us. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the third of four sayings that are structured similarly in Revelation. In each of these sayings, four of them in Revelation, it starts with the word here. And it's his way of saying, hey, here's how you need to handle that. Here's what you need to do. Twice when this uh, statement happens, he's alerting his listeners uh, to reflect on what he has said. Like in Revelation 13, verse 18, here is wisdom, or this calls for wisdom. Uh, and he talks about understanding the number of the beast and the number of that person. It's 666. Then he also talks about here is the mind having wisdom in order to crack the code of the beast heads in Revelation 17, verse 9. We'll get to that one in a few weeks. The first of these four sayings is a summons to enduring trust in the face of um, the beast's war against the saints. In chapter 13, here is the perseverance and faith of the saints, verse 10. And now, here in 14, the saints are summoned to persevere in trusting Jesus and keeping God's commands. Here we are called to endure, not despite our enemy's power, but because of their future destruction. And I smiled when I finished reading this quote, because that's the punchline. He's saying, here, he's saying this calls for endurance from the saints that keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Blessed are you if you die in the Lord, because you'll rest from your labor you're not going the same place that they are, and your works will follow you. In other words, we're called to endure um, the treatment from our enemies because we know how it all ends. And that reminded me of one passage of Scripture I want to read in 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians is a great book. But in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes this in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. Now, think about what he's fixing to say here. He's boasting to other churches about this church in Thessalonica because they're persevering, they're keeping the faith despite being persecuted by their own people. And then he says, this is evidence. Listen to this. This persecution that you're enduring is clear evidence 
of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you're also suffering since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. And this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with His powerful angels when He takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's not, a, that's not, a lie. That's not annihilation. I couldn't hardly say that. You know what I mean? Eternal destruction lasts forever. He says they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength on that day when He comes to be glorified by His saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of His calling and by His power fulfill your ever desire to do good and your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Paul is saying there's going to come a day when the Lord's going to come back and His people that have been persecuted and mistreated, it's going to boomerang back onto the people that doled out the punishment. They're going to be punished by God because they don't know the gospel and they don't know Christ and they will be judged uh, with vengeance and flaming fire, and they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Meanwhile, Christ will come, and He'll be glorified in His people and marveled at by those who believe. All that's happening when He comes back. That's what I say. That's why I say, what do I believe about the second coming of Christ? I believe that when He comes back, every eye will see Him, Revelation 1. Okay, Every eye will see Him when He comes in the sky. And He will judge the wicked, He will reward the righteous, and He will make all things new, and He will rule and reign forever. The end. Okay, That's the summary. And we'll get there. You'll see that as we get through the book. But uh, the takeaway tonight is this. The takeaway is blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. In other words, our deeds follow us. And that means that God in heaven will acknowledge at the final judgment the evidence that proves who were Christians and who were not. What is some of the evidence? Patient endurance, obeying God's commands, and being faithful to Jesus. And so I'm reminded of one last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where Paul talked about the resurrection for a whole chapter. And he said, My dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. And so I want to challenge you tonight. Are you faithfully following Jesus and doing His work? Yes, Revelation doesn't sugarcoat anything. It paints a bleak picture. We get to the point where we realize there's going to be two kinds of people in this world, those that know Christ and those that don't. And there's going to be consequences for each group. And yet we can endure, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how bad it gets, we can endure. Why? Because we know the one 
who has redeemed us, who is our Lord and Savior, and we know how it ends. And so we are called to patient endurance and to keep the faith and to keep following Christ. And I want to encourage you, let this stir your heart tonight. Think about the people that you want to take with you and start praying for them. Start talking to them. You know, if anything, uh, you know, we've been so blessed in America that we can get caught up in our little world. We can get caught up in our little schedules that we just kind of rub the treadmill of life, chasing carrots, uh, trying to catch this and catch that and make our life better and beautiful. But I think after the kind of year that you and I have had, I think we've realized, number one, we don't need to take anything for granted. And number two, we're more vulnerable than we think we are. Life is so uncertain. And ultimately, we're all going to die. And we want to make sure that we have done what God wants us to do so we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So I want to encourage you tonight to just thank the Lord for your salvation. Pray for those that you know and love and that you talk to that may not know Him and pray that God would uh, you know, open up their heart and that He would give you an opportunity to open up your mouth and just share with them what God has done for you and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Amen? Well, let's all pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. I pray that it would encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, to be faithful to you. Lord, I'm thankful that, as the psalmist said, you have took my feet, you took me out of a pit, and you took my feet and set them on a rock. And Lord, you put a song in my mouth. And now I sing the song of the redeemed, where I have once was lost, but now found, was blind, but now I see. And Lord, I thank you for the salvation you've given me in Christ. Lord, I pray that I be counted worthy of the kingdom and that, Lord, that we might be faithful to serve you and to share the gospel while there's still time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.